Kia ora everyone and welcome, I'm Andrew Whiteside and today I'm talking with Michael Hurst. Michael is a Kiwi actor and director. You'll know him from various TV roles and in particular the shows Hercules, Xena and Spartacus. He's also very well known in theatre both as an actor and director. Today I'm talking to him about The Changeling which is currently playing in Auckland. It was first written and performed in the early 17th century so it's almost 400 years old. It involves lust, love, murder, deceit and sin. And believe me, it's very, very good. Michael Hurst, welcome and thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I wanted to kick off, first of all, by saying congratulations. I was completely overawed by this play. Oh, were you? Yeah, I loved it. So congratulations. And um, I'm interested to know that it's, it's a play that's 396 years old. Correct. But it feels like it's brand new. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it does and it doesn't. I mean, the thing... Um, what I love about that sort of work, it's the same with Shakespeare, is that people assume that because it's old, it's going to be old and that they're going to have to strain to understand. But in fact, it's not like that. You just need to understand the mechanisms of the language and suddenly you're listening to actually a modern play. It, it has some ideas in it that you possibly wouldn't get away with now, or certainly in the way it's presented. But that's a good thing because by bringing our 21st century lens onto that, we get to compare and react and, and make, make um, you know, assessments and stuff. Um, also, these plays, these Jacobean dramas, were written slightly later than Shakespeare when the theatre had got more of a foothold. And so they're more actor-oriented. There aren't so many great long speeches. It's not as poetic. You know, you'll have noticed that there are times when there's one aside after another and this, this, this device of talking to the audience, very big. And so they're written, they're sort of almost more plotty or boxy, if you see what I mean. They're kind of like, um, in some ways they're a bit, you'd think they were clunky, but they're not because as long as you grasp that the audience is in the same room as the actors and we're all doing it together, that's when it works. And it sings, you know, because of that. I always think um, with Shakespeare and with these sorts of plays, you don't dress them up in, midi, in Elizabethan garb. You put them in clothes that we recognise. So we see these individuals that we can recognise. We might see them on the street. And this is, uh, the, the precedent for that is actually Shakespeare, who if you look at all the um, evidence we have, I think there's only one image in Shakespeare where anybody is wearing anything other than contemporary costumes. I think it's a Julius Caesar and... All these people are standing around in Elizabethan doublet and hose and one of them's got a sheet on. Other than that, his audience was looking at themselves. I mean, he says that. We hold a mirror up to nature. So um, I'm not a fan of big costume dramas particularly because I think it pushes us away. What was it uh, that appealed to you about this play? Um, this play and the other Jacobean dramas I've been involved with, Duchess of Malfi, Tis Pity She's a Whore, um, The Revenger's Tragedy. Um, I've been talking lately about the, the way Netflix works and the way Amazon Prime works. Um, like all humans, we're all interested in the dark side of stuff. We're fascinated by the stuff that we would never do ourselves, quote unquote. And um, these plays are full of it. They're full of that... Um, conundrum of attraction and repulsion. I mean, this play, if you think of Beatrice, she hates with a visceral, physical loathing the man De Flores, and yet, yet 
this this repulsion becomes an addictive attraction. That's fascinating. I mean, from a Freudian perspective, it's before Freud, you know what I mean? So, uh, and just the fact that they are so outrageous, and if you look at, you know, the situation back then, they needed product. These theatres were like the um, TV channels, networks. They needed product, and they needed lots of it because um, a play would be exhausted within about, you know, four weeks easily. The entire population would have seen it, time for something else. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I love it because they're kind of um, actor-oriented. They're, they're really, um, they crawl into that, that subconscious darkness. I mean, I tried to make, I likened, I tell, told the actors in this, this room that we're in, it's a black room. It's like, um, it's like you're inside someone's nightmare and it just goes round and round and round and you can't get out of it until inevitably you, you go down the gurgler. <laughs> I guess for most of us probably haven't committed a murder in order to, to get our way. But nonetheless, I think me as an audience member could relate to the fact that all of us manipulate to some degree our surroundings, try and influence people, and also more importantly try to justify our behaviours even when deep down we know they're wrong. Yeah, that's a good good point. And, um you know, sometimes you, you say, you, like you say, some, something's wrong, something's not right, but you go, oh, I'll overlook it somehow. I'll just, I won't even think about that. You know, oh, yeah, that's a fib, but I won't, no, no, that's a... So with Beatrice, you know, she goes, oh, I'll just, oh, that'll go, I'll get it out of the way. And, of course, the moment you, you know, it's like um, honesty is the best policy, isn't it, that saying? The moment you tell a lie, then suddenly there are more lies to be told and it just circles out. And we see this all the time in politics. We see it all the time everywhere in crime. And here it is right in front of us. She says, oh, it's like Lady Macbeth, actually. I, I always think of it as Lady Macbeth, who um, after they've killed Duncan, she goes, a little water will cleanse us of this deed. Not realising, not, you know, fatally not realising what's going to happen and the consequences. And that's Beatrice. That's where it... And actually, a lot of these Jacobean plays look back to Macbeth, which is not exactly a Jacobean play because it was written in 1605, I think, uh, for somewhere around there, but is full of all those things, consequences um, not taken in account of, um, unleashing a waterfall of evil, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, and they all look back to that, that sort of, you know, once you, once you pull that, sort of pin, oh my God, you know, the explosion will happen. You've said that you see Beatrice not as a victim, which is how perhaps the original play that she... I, I think, yeah, that's true. So, um, as Shakespeare says, the purpose of playing is to hold a mirror up to nature and uh, reflect, um, to show the age and body of the time, its form and pressure. So the mirror is the same. The time has changed and um, in the original I would think at the end when she's saying um, forgive me Alcimero all forgive tis time to die when tis shame to live and she's probably in the original really um, confessing feeling her shame uh, but also committing suicide and so surely going to hell there is no it's despair that's a big thing for religious societies, especially Calvinist societies of Britain in, you know, 1620, whenever it was. Um, despair is the worst kind of sin. Um, and she dies. We, 
I said to Anthea Freya-Hill, who's playing it, and I said, look, you can't, we can't have this victim mentality. We have to own it. You own it. You started it. You finish it. You know, it doesn't matter how much De Flores has manipulated you or how evil he is. Um, and so at the end, she does it in a kind of way. I said, she's gone to the next level. She's got, she's like, um, you know, in the movie Carrie, when she gets the pig's blood dropped all over her, and suddenly she is at the next level, and these petty mortals creep about. And of course, she destroys them all. But with Beatrice, she looks at these people who are stuck in their, their. She, no, none of them have had anywhere near as exhilarating a time, evil though it is, as she has. And when she says, "Forgive me, Alcimero," all forgive. She's judging them. You petty people. And then when she says, "'Tis time to die, uh, when tis shame to live," I said to her, "You need to. You can't live in this world because nothing in this world will allow you, as the woman you are, to actually live because it's so constricting. So if there's any victim, it's not really a victim of." Um, it's a, it's a circumstance that she's in, and she transcends it, and so she does. She owns it, and she's all she's brutal at the end. I mean, I when it works, um, we almost think it's like we're the ones that are at fault or <clears throat> left behind or whatever it is. So yeah, um, we've we've definitely put the twenty first century lens upon that, which is the thing we must do, and we must do that with Shakespeare as well. It, it's what makes these works stay alive is not the fact that we can do them in a historical way or historically accurate fashion or whatever, but the fact that they stand up 400 and something years later and they still ring with that truth, you know, that awful truth of humanity or wonderful truth of humanity, you know. I guess that's the thing because in a, in a modern context we think we're very clever, particularly because of what um, through technology we're able to create and do. But nonetheless, if you look fundamentally at human nature, we're still the same. We fall in love, we get angry, we, we lust, we, we're greedy, we're, all of those things. And that hasn't changed throughout human history. There is nothing new under the sun, which is from the Old Testament of the Bible. So, and also, what are the French names? Plus sachants. The more things change, the more things stay the same. So, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you know, you look at any of those great plays, they're just full of human, what, what makes us human. That's why I love theatre, really. I was interested, given the, how, how, you know, the age of the play, that I was able to follow it. Um, I struggle with Shakespearean language. Um, studied a little bit, obviously, in, in high school, but, but still I find sometimes I'm, I'm losing some of the detail because I'm not following. I found in this play I was able to most of the time. There are occasions when, when I didn't. Yeah. But, uh, but So I, I was surprised and quite delighted that I could follow it. Yeah, I mean... Well, that's my mission. <laughs> that's well, you succeeded. Yeah, that's one of my missions with Shakespeare too. I mean, actually, I think this is harder to understand than Shakespeare. I think it's more difficult because in, it's not... In more ways. Well, it's not quite as good as Shakespeare. The thing is, the Jacobeans thought they were Shakespeare, but they aren't. I mean, he is the unparalleled genius of that theatre form. Um, and these are, although they, they're more plotty and have less great uh, set pieces, they're quite tricky to get around. Um, but, as I say, uh, I bring you know, years of having done it, and I maintain that everybody should be able to understand really clearly Shakespeare. I admit that occasionally I will add a modern uh, 
little word in. I call it shoehorning in. Um, so uh, often I'll put, when someone is mentioned as this noble man, I might say, well, say his name. So just to remind the audience, these plays are not about what you see. Um, if I can't hear it, I'm not interested. I don't care what you look like or how great the production is. If I can't hear it, and by that I mean on every level, I concentrate on language a lot. And I spend a lot of the time telling the actors to stop acting and just get on with these lines because it's in the lines. It's not in you. You've got to bring feeling to it, of course, but it's in the lines and you must be clear. And there are <clears throat> all sorts of things, you know, energizing towards the ends of lines. Um, the big one is understanding ideas. The difference between when you can't understand Shakespeare or Jacobean drama is because the actors are reciting the lines. All right, interesting. Yeah, and that's yeah. not what the purpose of it. The, the job of the actor is to make me, the audience, think they're making it up. That's the job. Interesting. It's really basic. I'll pretend. I know it's not real as an audience. I'm coming, I know it's not real. I'm paying my money and I will pay my money. I'll make a bargain with you, the performer and the director. I'll make a bargain. I'll pretend it's not real if you pretend as hard as you can that it is real. Yeah. And if you don't do that, then you're not coming to the party. And one of the most significant ways of doing that is to understand the ideas and to understand that breathing gives you inspiration. It is inspiring, literally. New ideas presuppose a new breath and a change of pitch. And if you do that so that each line or statement has its new idea and you take a breath, the audience goes with you and they start understanding ideas. And actually that sort of transcends the language. And once an audience, if you can get an audience in the first, you know, five minutes to understand what you're talking about, they feel clever. And when an audience feels clever, that'll allow you to do pretty much anything. If an audience feels not clever, they look at their watches and they want to go home. It's interesting too, because I know from my own experience of theatre, I am more prepared to suspend belief when I'm in the same room as the actors mm -hmm. than if I'm seeing them on a film. Yeah, of course you are. Well, on a film, you can eat your popcorn or whatever it is. I mean... But there's something about uh, we're in that... Dynamic. Yeah, and that... But it's why I'm not really sure about virtual reality because there's something about the fundamental human interaction. And if you think about storytelling, it, for millennia, it has always been we're close to the storyteller. It always comes down to... It reduces to sitting by the fire, listening to the shaman doing his thing or her thing. Um, yeah, I agree. And the group activity of of theatre uh, uh, is, because in, in, a, in a movie theatre, you'll all see the screen, but you're much more cocooned in your own individuality. When you come to a group thing, look, there's no accident that it's got a religious overtone. When I say religious overtone, it's like a church. The theatre is the dirty church. <laughs> uh, and, and it's no accident, because you think about it, you, you, you move yourself to a special location, you go through a ritual of entrance, you sit down, and you're taken through a, a, a thing from the beginning of the end. In a way, the, if you like, and I, I might, I'll sound a bit lofty here, but the priestly function of the performer is to lead the congregation from the beginning of this ritual to the end of this ritual. Um, and it's never been any different. And it's no wonder that the church hated the theatre for so long because the theatre interrogates fate. 
And that's a problem for the church because how can God allow evil in the world? So as soon as evil happens on a, on a, on a stage and the God of um, any play is the author, everything has to have a reason because, you know, it goes author, then audience, then characters. We know just less than the author and a lot more than the characters. Um, so that group dynamic, yeah. Also, if you think about our individual brains, uh, uh, human spirits, we are, um, I mean, I, I agree that no man is an island and we're social creatures, but ultimately you're the only one that's going to do your dying for you. Nobody else is going to die for you. You'll do it. Um, and that is the bedrock of the human condition. That's where we are. So we need communication. We absolutely do that for validation, for all sorts of reasons. And when in our each little individual cocoon, we all agree to do one thing and focus on one thing in a room together, you can say that all of these individual human existences somehow become more uh, present. Yes. Even the performers, even, dare I say, the writers who are long dead make a kind of an appearance in that room. And so the depth of humanity and what it is to be human and that whole skein of all of us is very apparent. It's the same thing at football matches, at, yep. at, at rock concerts, the same thing. Um, there's that element and suddenly uh, the, 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 the moment is so much richer because it's a shared moment. You can't download that. You can only do that in theatre. Exactly. You, can't, you can't download it at all. And, and, um, and that makes it powerful. And why I don't think theatre will ever die. It may... Uh, change and start to become um, more boutique, maybe? I don't know. Um, but that is the power of it, undoubtedly. And if you think about humanity, we, we may sometimes try to deny it, but we do seek out connection to whatever degree, and theatre does provide that, yeah. literally because you are, it's a group shared experience. It totally is. We, you can't, we can't avoid seeking out connection. I mean... You can meditate, of course, and I, I do that, and that's. But again, in some ways, that even brings you more into the world human picture because you know um, Hamlet says it. He points to his head at one point and says, "I could, I could be bound in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space." And I just go, "Wow, that is extraordinary. That is just that's the that is it in a nutshell." <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so the staging I was impressed with because there was very little in a sense. There was a, yes, there was a, a statue of uh, Mary yeah. at the corner. Because of the question of virginity, which is an interesting one. That's a hard one to get across in the 21st century, that virginity is a commodity in those days. Like, you know, you, um, but I saw this documentary recently on the 70s, and it was about the um, women's uh, movement. Um, and... Um, how it was confused with the uh, sexual revolution, the women's revolution, the sexual revolution, so that when, and this is what these women were saying, in 1973 or 74, this woman was saying, a man would say to her, are you liberated? Not meaning, are you a liberated woman in your own power and earning, but do you sleep with men? That, there was a confusion there. Wow. There was a very big confusion that, that the sexual revolution and the women's revolution was confused by men and... and, and um, because you know, it's taken a while for that to change. Um, but she was saying that even 
at that time, so about 72, 73, 74, young women were still expected to go to their marriage bed intact and men were supposed to sow their oats before they go to the marriage bed. You go, well, okay, there's a double standard there, you know, and um, that's the case. And in this play, of course, the whole centre of it is the, the, the nice guy, El Samero, going, if she's been touched, <laughs> then I don't want a part of it. And he has a test for her to see if, she, if she's a virgin, which is a bit ludicrous for a modern uh, woman, but not that, not that distant, you know. Well, if, if you think of the political discourse in America, particularly with evangelicals, oh, it, yeah. <laughs> it certainly yeah. isn't. Totally. Yeah. We, we think that human, you know, humankind has progressed a certain way, but it certainly hasn't in many parts of the world. And That's even right. here in New Zealand, you know, there's, there's, there's abuse, there's all sorts of yes. things going on. So, yeah. so it is not this great wave of um, improvement or no. progression necessarily. So, so in, in that sense, then, this play is completely relevant to today. Yeah, and that's why I put the Virgin Mary up there, because... Um, because, of course, the plays, these plays are always about corrupt Catholics. They're always set in Italy or Spain because we're in Calvinist Britain yes. or, you know, Protestant Britain. And, and we're looking at and the, the evil Spaniards and the evil Italians and the Pope and papacy. And they thought it was the Antichrist, you know. So here's the Virgin Mary who, you know, is clearly, um, I always call it Virgin on the Ridiculous because... Um, you know, clearly, you can't have a baby and not be impregnated. But anyway, we're going to go there. Um, but I wanted that constant reminder, so the audience are always going, oh, right, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And then my biggest thing was, let's put, um, let's have it happen all around the audience. Um, the, the centerpiece of, of this play is that, that she removes her fiancé getting this evil hitman to do it and then think she's going to be okay to marry the guy she's actually fallen for. They get married, though now she's completely addicted to sex with this other guy. Um, it's a wedding and so there's a sense that you're at some sort of wedding reception or some sort of gathering because tables and chairs and it happens all around the audience and of course that makes it really easy for the actors to just turn to the audience and talk to them. Because you're in the same room, and I love that. You, you should see their faces, you know, when, when the audience, suddenly, suddenly someone turns to the audience and goes, oh, I feel a giddy turning in me. And, they, oh, you know, last night uh, she had the money that she was going to pay to Flores with, and she has to hide it for a bit. So she just looked at this woman and said, hold this. And the woman just held it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but that's... So included. Yeah. yeah, included, you know. And another thing was I wanted to move away from... Um, so if you look at what's happening here at the moment with the pop-up globe, there's a, a really, you know, it's been an amazing success for them. And um, uh, perforce of that venue, of course, they have a particular style they have to operate in, which is, which is um, big and grand and all the rest of it. But, you know, I've always felt, well, that's great. That's one thing. Um, but that is not, to quote Macbeth, that is not the be-all and end-all of Shakespeare. Uh, because we have moved into the 21st century and people listen to Shakespeare, they listen generally differently to the Elizabethan audience because Elizabethan audience was way more um, visual, I'm uh, sorry, less visual. They didn't have television films. Exactly. Half of them had never even seen a painting, but what they had was words and they couldn't even read half of them. So listening was acute. So when Shakespeare would have made some fabulous line in, in the globe, the original globe, that could have been, you know, ooh, ah, fireworks. Much harder with a modern audience. Uh, generally, the way 
the way you make a modern audience shut up is turn the lights out and yes. then they'll go quiet. And I think that's not to be uh, uh, ignored or sneezed at. I think it's really important. So I wanted to go the other way uh, because we, we can't do what the globe is doing because they've got all that big machine and all that. We need to do something else. And I really believe that this sort of small, smaller, boutique, more focused uh, thing allows the audience to hear more of everything. Well, I actually agree with you, and I think um, it's a very visceral experience, and, and I, I don't want to give too much of the plot away, but there's a moment where Edwin Beats, who plays El Samero, has locked two villains in the closet. <laughs> yeah, and then isn't that this, outrageous? Has, has this, this <laughs> yeah. outpouring yeah. of um, uh, despair. Yeah. Now, I was a metre and a half from him <laughs> when he was delivering that. Yeah, yeah. I, it was just spectacular well that's you say that's exactly what i wanted high octane acting at close quarters that's what i, I, mean, I could feel what he was feeling yeah well that's great I, that's I, that's a, i'll tell him he'll be thrilled um yeah that's that's exactly the effect i was after and um and what i'm interested in doing um with those plays and i do it with greeks too i do it with all those big plays much much and i guess that goes back to when i first came to Auckland back in the 70s you know I came from the court theatre which was a tiny theatre then to theatre corporate which was even tinier and yet we would do these enormous plays you know Threepenny Opera, King Lear, huge productions as well as smaller ones but honestly no hardly bigger than this room you're in now and sort of titanic performances and audiences would just be left kind of you know gasping in their seats, which that's what you want, isn't it? You want the, the transformation to happen. Is there a side of you that's perhaps is subversive? And it's just a question. Yeah. But do you see theatre as a way of shaking things up? Absolutely. Even in a comedy, you want them to think, you want them to be... Why do you go to, a, to see something like this? You need to be lifted out of daily existence. That is the thing. It's the transcendence thing. And that is very ancient. That's going back to this fireside you know, shaman thing. You go via the Greeks and all that. It's to be lifted up, either in tragedy or comedy, those two faces. They're not two faces, they're one face. The one face does the same thing. And I always say this, the effect of having a good cry on your body and the effect of having a side-splittingly good laugh, if you look at the thing that's going on in your body, they're very almost identical. Tears, trembling, sweating, crying, snot, all of it can happen, and it's they're the opposite poles, but they're tissue paper thin, the wall between them. Um, subversive, yeah, theatre is a subversive thing. It needs to be because, um, because it's at the edge, and it does reflect things. Often the theatre will get there before anything else in terms of issues. Um, you know, if you look at, uh, going back to the 80s, when with the AIDS, uh, you know, the um, AIDS epidemic that happened, the first thing that we were doing were plays about about couples, you know, gay couples losing one of one of their, you know, one of them partners and all of that. Um, if you look, all of it, it, it all, that's where it is. Theatre lives on the edges and must be subversive and must also surprise, uh, people get used to theatre, I'll just sit over here and I'll watch that. Well then when they come into a, a venue and suddenly they don't know where to look, it happens behind them and they're forced to physically move, great, that's what I say. 
And, and when Brecht did it in the middle of the 20th century, he said, let's not, um, let's not hide everything. Show me everything. Because another aspect of it is, uh, this is work, quote, quoting Brecht, this is work, my friends. Let me see the ropes holding, let me see the bit of the set here. Let me see the people getting changed. In the play we're doing now, in the, in the venue we're in, we've got, fortunately, for, for this one, we've got uh, curtains around the outside, so people can disappear. We've got a takapuna, uh, a takapuna in, um, in their studio. There are no curtains. Everything will be exposed. Even the fast changes of costume, they're going to be exposed. There's nowhere to hide. So rather than go, oh, what are we going to do? I go, well, let's make that part of it, and we'll ritualize it and the audience will see it, and the more they see the mechanisms, the more they recommit to the material. That's the alienation effect. The more you see what's going on, the more you're reminded that it's not real, the more when you come back you have to recommit, and that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. Well, Michael Hurst, I'll be very fascinated to see what other works you bring to well, the small stage. I, I would love it to be the start of something. I'd like to keep going. I've got um, a good few years left, and um, it's time to start putting it back in and, and, and getting these, these powerful, terrible, wonderful things happening. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time. You're welcome. That was Michael Hurst talking about The Changeling and all things Shakespeare. Now, the play runs right through to early August, so if you want to see it, just visit thechangeling.co.nz or click on the link provided on my website. I'm Andrew Whiteside. Thanks for listening.